You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Calvin Bell III, and I am a junior political science and philosophy double major from Pensacola, New Jersey. And here at Morehouse, I serve in several different capacities as a student, of course. So I am the vice president of the Pre-Alumni Association, as well as the senator at large of the Student Government Association and other things. And so here, I would like to welcome and thank you for being here for this welcome and wonderful homecoming event hosted by the Byron Allen Media Group's major black media entity known as the GRIO. This momentous occasion is not only important because it takes place during a long-awaited Spellhouse homecoming. I've been waiting so long for this. But it is also because it is hosted by a Morehouse man himself, Panama Jackson. Mr. Jackson graduated from Morehouse in 2001 with his BA in economics and his master's in public policy analysis from UMD in 2003. Since then, he has had 18 plus years in the writing game as a co-founder of the Very Smart Brothers platform at the root in 2008 before moving on to the GRIO to become a columnist and the host of the Dear Culture podcast, which you will be experiencing today. And so without further ado, I would like to, to get excited and get happy and welcome the, our wonderful host, Panama Jackson, who is about to facilitate a powerful, witty, and authentic conversation of all things black culture. What's going on, everybody? Thank you, people that I know. Look at this family and friends. Thank you all for being here for this, this conversation, for this live podcast of Dear Culture, a podcast from the Grill Black Podcast Network. We're going to have a conversation today about the importance of HBCUs, which are obviously near and dear to my heart and everybody in here. Uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for HBCUs. I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for HBCUs. In fact, I wouldn't be the writer that I am without Mr. Calvin Miles Smith, who was sitting in the front row right here, because without him, I never would have discovered blogs, in which case I never would have met my eventual business partner, Liz Burr, who introduced me to blogging and helped me create the Very Smart Brothers uh, platform with my other co-partner, Damon Young. So the whole point of doing this conversation is to highlight the importance of historically black colleges and university, preaching to the choir, but we all like, I like preaching and I love choirs, so that's all right. And we're gonna do this in two parts. One is gonna be done with a professional panel. One that's gonna be spoken to with uh, both a Morehouse alum and a Spelman alum. We're gonna do a panel that's gonna talk about how being here helped influence and helped inspire and helped lead to success for two particular grads who are doing amazing things. The second panel that we're gonna do is one that's a little more personal. I'm gonna do it with the people that I came into Morehouse with, some of the people that were in a summer program with me that have helped me become the person that I am today, that never let me falter, that never let me fail, that have allowed me as the person that I am to be as successful as I like to view myself, but also ensure that if I do fall, I don't fall too far. So we're gonna do it in two different parts, but we're gonna start we're gonna start with the first panel. So, ladies and gentlemen, our first panelist 
Khadijah Robinson, was raised in Savannah, Georgia, and her life is a manifestation of the Issa Rae phrase, I'm rooting for everybody black, something that I'm sure everybody in this room is familiar with. She was raised in a household that centered black culture and issues and never lost her love of community. She graduated from Spelman, the University College of London, and has a JD from Harvard Law School. She started the Nihilist, a digital platform connecting consumers with black-owned brands online. The site focused on modernity, accessibility, and informative context to make it easy and convenient to buy black online. In June 2021, though, the Nihilist was acquired by Sean Love Combs. Some of us call him Puff, some of them call him Diddy. He's got a bunch of names, Brother Love through Empower Global, a curated marketplace to discover and shop the world's best black-owned brands. She now serves as the CEO of Empower Global, overseeing all operations and development, and helping to lead the revolution of black buying. And she's high as, I'm joking, I'm muscle relaxers. Anyway, put your hands together for Khadijah Robinson. Our next guest, Rashawn Williams, is an American financier, technology investor and adjunct professor with over 150 investments under his belt and over 40 exits, which sounds very important. Uh, I'm not one of them big investors. I don't know a lot about that world, so, uh, well, it all reads like Greek to me. He's currently a general partner in the MVP All-Star Fund, a late-stage tech fund, a private equity investor out of his family office value investment group and adjunct professor at Morehouse College. With a passion for financial literacy and entrepreneurship, he founded the Kemet Institute in 2001, a nonprofit focused on providing free financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and life skills, life skills classes to underserved communities and schools, and he was appointed to the Board of Trustees for Fisk University. Uh, also, he was the first person that I ever rode in a uh, Range Rover with. First time I ever got in a Range Rover was with Rashawn, uh, senior week, Morehouse College. So put your hands together for Rashawn Williams. It was a red Range Rover. He saw me walking down the street, and he was like, yo, you need a ride? I was like, uh, I'd never been in a Range Rover before, so I was like, sure. It was, as Petey Pablo said, got a button in the middle to make the joint go, eh, eh. It was one of those type joints. I got it, because Jay-Z asked, dude, what was the difference between a 4.0 and a 4.6? So I had to get the 4.6. Do you remember that? I vividly, and I'm not going to repeat the line, because this is a family show, but I, uh, I vividly remember, vividly remember that line. So uh, first off, thank you all for being here. Um, part of the reason I wanted to do this and bring you all on particularly because you guys are very successful. You do things uh, in business that a lot of people would benefit to learn about, but you also center your blackness and the culture in everything that you do. Um, in the time I've known you since we were here in, in school, I've known you for a couple years, but in that time of knowing you, I learned that how much the black community means to you. But before we get to that, how did you end up at Morehouse and Spelman? Give me the short version. It, it's potentially a very long version, because I imagine, you know, for, for some of us, it, 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 but how did you end up here in the first place, and why did you end up here in the first place? Rashawn, let's start with you. Man, I come from the south side of Chicago. Um, dad was a drug addict. Mom was on welfare. And in my neighborhood, it was a war zone. So Morehouse was the only school I applied to. And I think you know the story. We talked about this before. Mm -hmm. But Morehouse was the only school whose mission statement was to create leaders in the black community. And I knew what we needed in my community was leadership. And there was no other training ground for it. And I knew I didn't want to go somewhere that would treat me differently because I was black. I needed to be incubated. I needed to be built up 
because in the Chicago public schools, you're just taught that you are nothing and you're slaves and, and you have to be different than who you are in order to be successful. So I drove my little 1982 Ford Mustang, 714 miles from Chicago to Atlanta, applied right over there across the street with Andre Patillo, early admissions. And then when I got back, I applied for over 100 scholarships because I was broke and I wound up getting 17 of them. Actually, respect to you, because one of them was from the Black Women's Lawyers Association and it was for women only. They didn't know I wasn't a girl based on my name. Wow. <laughs> so I got the, <laughs> so respect to black women, uh, I got the UNCF scholarship, Jackie Robinson scholarship, and a few others. So, so, so that's how I got here. All right, Khadija? Um, I, I had basically no choice but to go to HBCU. <laughs> My parents both went to Alabama State, that's where they met, and when I was growing up, they were like, okay, so college, which HBCU are you going to? That was the year that my cousin started at Spelman, and I thought she was so cool, and I wanted to be like her, so I was like, I'm going to Spelman like her. So I decided at the tender age of eight, that's where I was going, and I applied early decision. I was like, no other school existed for me. I had to come to Spelman, and I also had to get a scholarship. So I, I this is back in the days of faxing. I would be, <laughs> I would be sending fax messages to the Spelman like admissions office with like different accomplishments. I'd be like, oh, I want an award. Let me fax it to Spelman and tell him why she could go get the scholarship. Oh, wow. And I, they gave it to me. I got a dean scholarship. So to Spelman, I Did they know I came. you when you got here? Did they say that's the girl that keeps faxing us? <laughs> we got to let her in so she does it so she stops. Listen, I quickly became intimately acquainted with the people in the financial aid office. They knew me very well and very quickly. I did too. They actually revoked my scholarship every year that I was here, despite the fact that I was never on, I, I, my grades were always fine, but that was back when we used to carry all the, all of our, uh, all the letters and everything like in our pocket. So I used to go back there with my scholarship paper, say I have a scholarship. They just push a button and then I was good. So that happened uh, sophomore, junior, and senior year. I got like, no money yeah. from Morehouse at all. It was just too many people who needed money. Mm -hmm. So I had to go elsewhere and get money, and I was happy with that. I, also, I'm from Chicago, and you know, the sh Chicago public schools, we just didn't test well. So like, you know, we're getting 19, 20, 21s on the ACT. Everybody at Morehouse had like a 31. So yeah, I had to go find money elsewhere. Right. All right, so funny enough, I have four children and all of them are going to go to an HBCU as far as I'm concerned. Now, by the time they're ready to go to college, college might be two, $300,000 a year. Ooh, so if they can't afford to pay for it on their own, I don't know how that's gonna happen. Um, you didn't put money in a little Gerber There ain't enough money. <laughs> Listen, that little $37 ain't gonna cover, um, <laughs> cover all the years that we gotta cover here. All right, so let me ask this. You're both very successful business people as far as I'm concerned and just, your track record show that. You started the Nihilist. When did you start that? In 2019. All right, so why did you start that? Oh, because I was pissed off. So I, <laughs> basically, I was a lawyer. I went to, I did a master's after I graduated from Spelman. Then I went to Harvard Law School. I hated being in law school, and, and I knew already when I started practicing that I wasn't going to like it, but um, I I didn't really see other options. You're kind of funneled from these big, from the like top law schools into these big law firms. And they come on campus, they interview, you get your job before you even graduate. You, I had my job at the beginning of my third year in law school. So you're just kind of shepherded through this process. Started a law firm, I was like, what the fuck is this? It was crazy. Like the 15, 16 hour days, 
um, for people I didn't care about. It was, you know, X bank or Y pharmaceutical company. So I um, thought I'd go to actually practice, be in the courtroom. I wanted to go to a U.S. attorney's office. So I applied for clerkships, one-year appointment with a federal court judge as like my pivot year. And I would spend that year working with the judge, be in the courtroom, and then leave there, go to the U.S. attorney's office. So I get into this position. It's super I applied two years in advance of the position. So I got that job in 2016, but I didn't start till 2018. And I was in court every day. I'm the only black clerk my judge I ever had. And I was one of like five black clerks in the entire courthouse. This is the DC federal court system. And it was crazy. You're like seeing a cycle of black defendants every single day. There maybe was like two non-black defendants the entire time that I was there. And it's just, I knew conceptually that our criminal justice system is all the way fucked up, but being in the courtroom every day, I was like, wow, this like, we don't have a chance. This is designed to literally put us in prison for as long as possible, like lock us up, throw away the key, with or without a trial. Like I saw people whose trials were getting pushed out years because of calendars. Cause like, oh, the judge has a vacation and the prosecutor has a vacation the next month. So we'll just schedule this eight months out and they'll just stay in jail until then. So I was just so frustrated. I started as my like de-stressing hobby, building a Google spreadsheet of black businesses that I was gonna shop with. Cause I'm like, if I'm gonna do anything at the very minimum, I can at least spend money with black people and right. be purposeful about that part of supporting my community since they just trying to lock us up and kill us out here. Mm -hmm. And that Google spreadsheet grew and it grew. And then I decided to start my first business cause people were asking me about it. They're like, oh, I wanna buy black owned bathing suits. Like you got anybody on there on your list? And I, when I saw the interest, I decided to start it uh, like built it into a website and then it literally just grew, grew from there so organically when i was doing it i had absolutely no concept that i was starting a business i definitely wasn't thinking about it like a startup and even when i built the website i'm like yeah i'm just building a website so people can like find it and they don't have to ask me um and then yeah it just really like grew legs that i never foresaw at all which is interesting because i know like during the pandemic, it was probably a moment where that really took off, yes. essentially because I know I bought more black stuff during the pandemic than ever before. I have so many t-shirts I'll never wear from companies that <laughs> I just bought because it said melanin in it or Listen, black owned or something like that. It I bought was all timing. We launched, I yeah. launched the platform March 1st, 2020. I had uh -huh. no idea what was about to happen. So it was literally all timing. Wow. So. Rashawn, it's kind of a similar question. Like, I know when we were, so we were in school together, we were econ, but you always, I always knew you were, I think we always knew you were headed to Wall Street in some way, mm -hmm. shape or form, right? But you decided to go the econ route instead of the business. Mm -hmm. So we had conversations about that. <laughs> but now you're in this space that feels like rare air to me. Like, I know nothing about the venture capital yeah. space outside of the things I hear about. And, you know, when I read about these people who have all this money, angel investors, I, I hear all this stuff, but like, how in the hell did you get there? Because you, it seems like you're in rare air. I know, I see pictures of like all the black VCs and everybody fits in one little frame. <laughs> but it seems like a very powerful group of people. Like you all are basically have tentacles all over the place. Like, how did you even get there? 
What's crazy is Morehouse sends more black men into venture capital than any other school, really. And we're a small school, right? But I, um, when, when I got to Morehouse, I got an internship on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs. Right. So I was an econ major because I needed to major in something business related, but I just couldn't understand Onafade or Nabanji in accounting. So I said, you know what? I'm not majoring in business and jeopardizing losing my scholarship getting a B or a C in this class. So I majored in econ. I really liked Dr. Handy and all the professors right. in econ. And then I would dabble in a business class that I thought helped me, but I anchored my major in econ because I was really a history major. I was taking all the Afrocentricity classes. I remember that, yes. We're walking around with daishikis on. And I'll never forget, Dr. Egan told me I was a sellout for going to Wall Street. <laughs> and I was like, that is correct. <laughs> but wait, who, wait, who told you that? Dr. Egan. Okay, because I remember you and Dr. Dr. Handy having a spirited back and forth about your life plans too in the middle Absolutely. of class. Because they at Morehouse, class time for this. Yeah, at Morehouse, very Afrocentric. They want you to go get a PhD, like all yeah. your smart friends. And I said, look, the way my bank account is set up, I need to make as much money as possible when these scholarship checks expire. What is the highest paying job I can get where I don't have to worry about getting shot or going to jail? And it was like Wall Street. I said, okay, cool, what do I need to do? So I did an internship, and then when I left Goldman, when I was at Goldman Sachs, there was a guy sitting next to me who was 23 years old, white, making $7 million a year. He was 23. You said 70 million? Seven million, Seven million. a okay. year. Well, either way, that's a lot of money. Now look, let's say six years later, he was testifying before Congress because of the 2008, Ooh. you know, CDOs and all, but that's a different story. <laughs> right. But he was making, he but had he a good run. He could, afford, he could afford to go up he there and testify. He could afford the lawyers. He could exactly. afford the lawyers, right. Yeah, okay. his PR team handled that. So when you're on Wall Street, you're helping companies who need money raise money and, and businesses or investors who have money invest money. You're the middleman. So you watch all of your clients who are billionaires and family offices and very wealthy people who inherited wealth for long generations ago get richer and richer and it's your job to get them richer. But you learn the playbook at the same time. So I was like, listen, the black community I come from knows nothing about this. We want to live the American dream, but we have no idea what generational wealth is. We never heard of a family office. 100% of my rich white clients all had a family office. 100% of the rich black people I knew never heard of it. So when I left Wall Street, I'm like, I'm going to do what the billionaires do. I started the family office. I became an angel investor. I launched a VC fund with Nas. We called it Queensbridge Venture Partners. And I wound up being an early investor in Coinbase and Robinhood and Ring and Casper and PillPack. Not because I'm smart and I'm like this genius. It's because I was just doing what they were doing. I said, what are the billionaires doing and how do I do it? And I knew my only way, ironically enough, to get access to those deals, because I wasn't a white billionaire, was through our culture, hip hop athletes, entertainers. So this whole time I've been educating our community on investing for free, which I still do, not realizing that that was my Trojan horse to get into the venture capital industry because they want these athletes and entertainers to invest, but they don't want me. So I use that to kind of get my money in there. And now I manage this billion dollar fund with Manhattan Venture Partners. And, and it, again, it's not a lot of us. Yeah, it definitely is. And I, I know, um, I remember the first time I heard of like venture capitalists and all that, like I just, I didn't quite get it. Because with VSB, I remember we were talking at one point like, well, we need to turn this into like a regular website. How do we do this? And somebody said, go to, go talk to a venture capitalist. I'm like, so I go venture capitalist. I'm like, I'm like, how do I call Peter Thiel? Like, how do I call, like, like do, do, does he answer the phone if you call him? No, like, I don't, no. I don't know how to get this money. No. I don't know how to, well, as I found out, he doesn't, because right. I did call, but I just got PayPal's, um, Hello, Peter? I just, customer got, service. I just got customer service. 
and it didn't go and it didn't go very far. Um, turns out if you say uh, venture capital over and over again, they just hang up on you. Yeah. Um, it's not like Shazam. No, just pop right, up. Right. <laughs> Which would be very helpful. That would be helpful. So you recently, your Nihilist, your business was, and make sure I get this right, was bought out, bought it by... Acquired, yep. Acquired, there you go, that's the right term for this. Acquired by, uh, does it go by Brother Love now? Which one is it? Because I saw you put love in the thing, but is it Brother Love? Well, I, it, it depends on the context. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mr. Combs. Okay, there you go, Mr. Combs, <laughs> all right. Mr. Combs. Mr. Combs. Um, what was that process like? Uh, I actually, this is my favorite topic because when I was in college, I had, I was one of those like magnet school kids who had never failed at anything. There were this series of failures really. Mm. And at the time it was so painful and I was like reeling because I was like, wait a minute, I, I didn't get this thing that I applied for, I don't understand. Wow. Uh, but I, two recent things happened. It's, a, it's much longer than that, but the two most recent things. So I went to Nigeria right after I launched the Nihilist to go visit some of my cousins in de-stress just because I put all this energy into this product launch and I was white. And I'm like going for a week and a half to two weeks and then COVID like came through like a wrecking ball. They closed the borders. And I ended up staying in Nigeria for like seven months. Wow. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm here living in a foreign country. Uh, wow, <laughs> this was not what I expected at all. But it ended up being a blessing in disguise because I was able to still work at my law firm full time, but work on my business significantly because we were five to six hours ahead, depending on the time of the year in Nigeria. So I wake up early in Nigeria. I'm already an early riser. I wake up at five or six and I just work on Nile stuff until it was time for me to be online with the law firm. Mm. And I was, you know, everybody was virtual. So, you know, it wasn't too bad. I could use Zoom in Nigeria. So I was on all these calls. I'm pitching. I'm, you know, <laughs> doing all these pitch competitions. I'm like, wow, this is really like a startup. I got treated like a startup. I'm putting all this stuff into it. And I applied for this pitch competition that Goody Nation, which is based here in Atlanta, started by um, Justin Dawkins and Joey Womack. It, Goody Nation um, partners with Revolt TV to do a pitch competition every year for the Revolt Summit. So they were doing it virtually. I applied for it. I made it to like the top 15, but I did not make it into the final list of people who are actually pitching their business. But then Joey, one of the, uh, the founder of Goody Nation hits me up and he's like, you know, the Combs Enterprises people are like really interested in what you're building with the Nihilist, would love to connect you with them. So I connected with somebody at Combs, just talked a bit about what I've been building, what I was working on. So I'm like on their radar, we're loosely in contact. Nothing really happens of that, from that conversation at that point. And I'm like, well, damn, I ain't, I ain't get the little $10,000 from the fish competition <laughs> and they didn't even follow up. Like, okay, wow, whatever. Then separately, I applied for a Techstars Accelerator that is also based here in Atlanta. And that year they were focusing on like social impact companies. And so I applied for that. I knew the managing director, he and I had met at a previous event. 
and again, made it to the final round and then didn't get it. And it was like, you were, you, I, I had so much wrapped up in like, I'm gonna get in this. Techstars Accelerator, Techstars mm -hmm. is one of the like more, most famous and visible accelerators. And I was so crushed, I cried, I was so upset. That was like December of 2020. And then what I didn't know was happening was that now I was on the Combs radar because of my business and the managing director of the Techstars Accelerator that I did not get into after he saw me, you know, saw me just really open up to talk about my business and pitch and got to know me was like a huge fan. And so when the Combs team had been, they'd been working internally on the concept of this company and Power Global and incubating it, starting to create partnerships to really build it up. And as they started thinking about like how to really bring it to life and bring it to market, they started talking to different black venture capitalists, uh, one of whom was the managing director of this Techstars Accelerator. And he was like, oh, y'all need to talk to, to Khadija Robinson. She know her shit, she know what she's <laughs> talking about. She already built this, blah, blah, blah. Like y'all need to do that. And he pushed them away and they were like, oh yeah, we already know about her from this pitch competition. Boom, so they hit me up and we started talking and those conversations just developed into that acquisition. And my head, that was way better than $10,000 I was gonna get <laughs> in the pitch competition. <laughs> and it was also better than going through this accelerator. I didn't get, they, they take equity from your business. And this, I was like, oh, boom. Like I am now able to partner with one of the most visible figures in the world to build what I already wanted to build and what I didn't even know he also wanted to build. Right. And right now I have this, uh, you know, these resources and the, the ability to really do it in a way that it has never been done. So many mm. people have tried to do it, but now we're able to do it at a level that really hopefully sticks and gives people, the, both the entrepreneurs on the platform and the customers the experience they really deserve. So I'm, it was those those things that I was heard about that I thought were failures at the time that set me up for the the good thing that I didn't know was coming. She just dropped so many dimes for entrepreneurs, bro. <laughs> like it's funny that she said <laughs> that. Like, that's exactly. I hope where I people was about are paying attention. Just three real strong things that I heard, well, which are the biggest problems that Black founders have. You solved to get to where you are. The first thing was you you built something that you were passionate about to solve a problem that you were having. Without a problem, nobody's gonna go and spend their money with you, right? The second thing was, you said, I need to get to know some investors. I may not know folks that can give me 10,000, but let me expose myself to these accelerators and these pitch competitions. So you put yourself out there, you broaden your network, because investors only invest in people they know. This is the biggest thing that people don't understand. So the reason why Peter Thiel didn't hit you back is he don't know you. Mm -hmm. You gotta get warm intros. Facts. <laughs> and then last but not least, on the exit side, what was great about you is you had already built these relationships and you kept going. So people knew who you were. Usually it takes 12 to 18 months for a person to meet you, to actually want to do business with you. Mm -hmm. So you stuck in through that time, you built something that you like, and you put yourself out there. Most startups don't do that. They just go on Twitter and say, I need money, who wants to invest? And that's just not how it works. Or burn the bridge and be like, fuck you, you right. <laughs> Y'all ain't give me this $10,000. <laughs> yeah, I, I know some people who struggle with their Twitter fingers. Who, uh, they, they've never seen a bridge they weren't willing to burn. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. 
The Griot Black Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. She mentioned resources, like everything you're talking about. She mentioned resources, like needing the resources and being in a position now where you have more resources to achieve the goal that you're trying to do with, with what is your passion. You're somebody who provides those resources and stuff like that. So, so what do you look for in, in companies that you're trying to, like you, so you, you said you have a, you had a, a, does it still exist, the, the fund with Nas? Does that still exist? No, we already invested that. We're out. Manhattan Venture Partners now. Okay. Cause I, and I'd be seeing Nas talk about, man, I just made all this money on all this stuff. Like, I'm like, man, the hell? So I'm just going to give you all the credit. But anyway, so how did you look for businesses in, like, I'm, I'm imagining that black, black in in black entrepreneurs probably like you have an affinity for looking for those like those things. Yeah. I don't know if they're they're fixing the problems or whatever, but I'm just curious. Like, how do you even decide on those things? Yeah. So what VCs do is very similar to what NBA scouts do. We play offense. We go after the best companies growing the fastest in the industries that we care about. Okay. We don't wait for them to send us a message to our customer service department, <laughs> right? So like, if I'm the scout for the Bulls, I know who the best players in AAU in Atlanta, who the top point guards and power forwards are at the top 20 basketball programs. I'm not even recruiting for Morehouse. Gotcha. So these are important little distinctions because what's happening is you'll have someone who is from Morehouse who's a good basketball player, but he's not on the radar for the Chicago Bulls just like you'll have someone who has a great startup, but she's not on the radar for Andreessen Horowitz, right? Just because of ecosystems and networks. So the job of a VC is to find the best, literally the top 2% of companies in their industry. And there are ways we can find that out. We can go to the app store and see how quick people are downloading your app or how the volume versus others. We can see the traffic you're getting to your website. Like we hear the buzz. If I'm out here looking for a marketplace for black entrepreneurs and I Google it and your name pops up at the first one, I start to research you and I reach out to you. It's very rare that you reach out to me hmm. or you get introduced to me by someone that I invested in. So that's what I do in general. And 99.9% .9 of those companies are white male. And the reason is actually very simple. Before you raise money for VCs, and I'm sure you heard this, every VC in the world is gonna tell you it's too early, it's too early, it's too early. They won't trash. And it's because when I invested 150 times in startups with Queensbridge, those startups all had three things in common. Four, number one, they were white men, but number two, they all put their money in first. Okay. And they built something. Then they raised money from family, friends, and fools. People who loved them, people who knew them, or people who just didn't know any better. And then they built even more. Then they went to angel investors, people like me who left Wall Street, people like you, angel investors. Now they've raised 500,000, 750,000. They got a customer base, they got a product, they got a team. Then they go to VCs and say, look what I did with this amount. I'm looking for growth capital, not startup capital. VCs don't invest in ideas, they invest in fast growing businesses. So in the black community, we typically, because of the wealth gap, we typically don't have 50,000 and put in our own startup. Mm -hmm. We don't have any family, friends, or fools with 50,000. And we're an angel investor, what is that, right? So we go to that same VC and we say, hey, invest in my startup. You just put 10 million in his, and at a $30 million valuation, invest in mine. And that VC writes a check over here and tells you, you're too early. Yeah. The white founder says, thank you very much, and goes on Crunchbase, and the black founder says, racism. 
They're partially right because of the wealth gap, but we just don't know the rules and the stages that you need to go through. So I think it's the responsibility of black VCs to give the answers to the tests to black founders. Look, first round here, second round here, third round here, here are the market terms, here's what you need to do. Then they'll find you or you reach out to them through a warm intro. So I spend a lot of time, as you know, on social media just trying to explain that because everyone is excited about VC, but no one's getting the playbook on how to, how to put a pitch deck together, what to say to a VC, how to do diligence on a VC, how to set up a data room. So that's where I spend a lot of my time and that has a multiplier effect. And I do invest in some black startups, like one of my best investment is uh, Noble, it's a guy named Mark Wilson, black dude, it's like the athletic apparel company. Okay. I mean, dude went from two million in revenue to 300 million in revenue in five years. So like that dude's on a rocket ship, but he was just overqualified regardless of his race. So it's my job to make a return and help my community. And when those two overlap, I feel great about it, but I am responsible for making them overlap instead of just a bystander and waiting. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. That stuff is all fascinating to me. Like I said, you all operate successfully in worlds that I read about and know. But for the last question I'm going to ask you for this part of the panel, I want to bring it back home, right? So how did Spellman influence the work that you do, the way that you move, just where do you place Spellman in terms of the success that you have and how you're managing to do it? Oh, Spellman is everything. I'm so happy to be home. Um, <laughs> Spellman is everything. I, you know, we were talking a little bit back there. I was telling you about being my country ways. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. I was born in Montgomery, Alabama. I ain't never heard of venture capital until I came here. Like the words venture capital were, I, I knew them both separately because I was an English major, I could speak English, but I had no concept of what that meant. I hadn't, I hadn't even met anybody from Canada when I got to college, <laughs> like I was country. <laughs> and Spellman opened the world for me. I studied abroad. They really pushed people to study abroad. It was my first time going anywhere that wasn't the Bahamas. And I went to Portugal for, for a semester. Um, you know, they opened you up to so many opportunities. The alumni reach back and touch you in a way to pull you forward. I did an internship. I thought I was going to be a journalist when I first got to school. So I did an internship at Vibe Magazine my first uh, summer. Um, in college and that summer I met all these Spelman alumna in in New York and they were just so like so glamorous to me they were doing all kinds of stuff people working at MTV people who were working you know working in finance lawyers all these things people who I had never met before in my life and they were always like how can we help what can we do spellman pushed me to be this networker that i am to like go to these events and talk to people when i don't know a single soul and i show up and i'm like hi i'm Khadija. how's it going which is exactly how i met the managing director of this TechStars, uh you know accelerator but spellman really instilled that in me it still it instilled a, a quest for knowledge, a, a desire to really explore the world. 
I came here literally having never traveled except to the Bahamas, and I have now been to like 65 countries, so traveling is my jam, and Spelman did that for me. I, I have literally no, no shame, no fear of embarrassment. I will go talk to anybody <laughs> about anything, and I have met so many people who've been so instrumental to bringing me where I am because of that, and it also just gave me that assuredness to be like, I, I, I don't know what these other people are doing, and I don't know what preconceptions or notions you have before, but I know I'm the shit. Ain't no imposter syndrome over here. Like, baby, check my resume. I went to Spelman. I went to Harvard Law School. I deserve to be here. I'm smarter than all of y'all. Like, don't play with me. So it, it's such a different attitude to come into, um, the, especially like the startup realm, because this thing will grind you down as a founder. You get so many no's and things blow up all the time. And if you don't have that backbone and that self-assuredness, whoo, it can get really, really, really ugly. So it, it just has made me the person that I am and given me the, the wherewithal, that center to go forth and kind of conquer. You keep saying I'm successful. I'm like, am I really? I don't know, but we're about to see. <laughs> Sean? Man, I, you know, I think Morehouse was my first investor. Uh, that's just a quick way to sum it up. Like, Morehouse is like an accelerator for black boys who want to become black men and leaders. And some of us needed a whole lot more than others. Like Frank, you know, he didn't need anything when he came here. <laughs> but I didn't have a father in the house. I didn't know how to eat at a dinner table in the proper way. I had no positive role models. Uh, my schools were the worst schools in Chicago. We had computer teachers who didn't understand how to work computers, like stuff like that. And you, you were made fun of where I'm from if you were a good student. You had to be a thug or an athlete. So I get to Morehouse and it's, it's 800 other freshmen who are all good students and athletes and, and have personalities. And my, my professors are African-American and they're, they're, they're not teaching me a curriculum that says we're inferior to everyone else for these 10 reasons. And they're building up that pride. I was a very insecure and angry kid coming from the environment I came from. Morehouse built me up and made me very proud and made me feel more responsible for my community. And, and I also wasn't that angry anymore because I got exposed to exact things that I needed to live up to my potential. I got opportunities to do internships, you know, travel all around the world and meet guys like you. And I would have never gotten that at another school. And one of the things that I think people don't talk about at Morehouse enough is what I wasn't exposed to by going to Morehouse. I did not have dudes with tiki torches marching around or people spray painting on my door. I mean, you know, we said it ourselves. We didn't need anybody spray painting. But we, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm in an environment that was safe for me at the stage I was. Because you got an angry kid from the South Side. Like, if somebody pull up and say something racist, they're going to get got. So, like, I wouldn't even be here if I probably went to another school because I didn't have the restraint in order to respond to those things. Because South Side of Chicago is 99.9% .9 black. And I never even saw a white person until I was 12 and it was a police officer. So I've actually never been in the class with non-black people in my entire life. Wow. So, you know, I love Morehouse for that. And that's why I work so hard to pay it forward and give it back. Yeah, we can put our hands together for Khadija Robinson and, and Rashawn Williams. Thank you all for sharing uh, with us. This is amazing. I, you all said everything I wanted to hear. <laughs> Let's take a break. Stay with us. 
The Griot Black Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. This next panel is very special for me. So it ain't often. See, my boys up here laughing. They're laughing at me already. This is quite embarrassing, but... It ain't often that you get an opportunity to come back home and bring your best friends in life, the people that the school gave you as friends and brothers, the family you get to choose, and you get to bring them up and have a conversation with them about why you're even where you are, how you got here, do you belong there, that kind of thing. And I'm fortunate enough that we're still as close today as we were back when we were younger. Ups and downs, because we're family and that, that, those things happen, but... We were in each other's weddings. They are all godparents to uh, my children, uh, along with other people too. My kids have a lot of godparents. Um, they're my brothers, they're family. And it's one of those things that's really interesting. Like you, when you have really close friends that are doing great things, sometimes you forget how successful they are. Like you can forget how important the things that they do are because when you're hanging out, you, you're drinking, you're sitting around, you're playing spades. You know, you kind of forget that people that you're hanging with might actually win a Nobel Prize one day. Or, like, you know, might be able to, as Frank used to want to do, take the cultural bias out of, out of standardized testing, right? That was an actual goal. You know what I'm saying? Like, Adrian, listen, my man is running a consulting firm right now, but we were all convinced he was going to be the greatest music producer of all time. He got more beats than anybody in one of the most gifted musical prodigies, I, and I genuinely mean it from the heart. So I'm gonna do two things. I wanna introduce you to my brothers on stage. We're gonna start with Frank. Frank Williams, class of 2001, Southeast Washington, D.C.'s finest. Um, <laughs> my brother has, he's got a B.A. in math, has a master's in secondary math education, right? And I'm doing this off the top of my head, by the way. I'm not gonna use any notes. Um, a second master's degree in psychology, and a PhD in psychometrics and quantitative psychology yeah. from Fordham University, right? If I told you some of the things we say when we're just hanging out, then you'd be like, how does this, how does this super educated brother do all that? Because uh, it's light blue. We got, we got inside jokes for days. Next to him, Adrian Wilson, also class of 2001. So BA, well, no, BS in econ and math. Did you get the BS? Did, did they give you the BS in econ? They gave me the BA. In they gave you the BA in econ, but he has the BS in math. BS in math. Right. We went to Maryland together. He has a master's degree in economics, and he's now the CEO and president of his consulting firm, Anadria Consulting. And my man gets contracts. He gets money. Doing numbers. He gets money. Right. Right. <laughs> Last but not least is my brother Manu Platt, who I just learned has a Wikipedia page today. When I was trying, I was I Googled him trying to find out. Uh, I was trying to find out something about you, and I found I was trying to find a bio because his LinkedIn page is trash. But his um facts. But you have a BA, you know, BS. I'm excuse me, BS in biology. That's right. From Morehouse. House has a joint biology, a PhD in biology and biomedical engineering from Georgia Tech. And Emory University. And Emory University, that's right. Boom. Did a postdoc at MIT. I did. And you're now a professor at Georgia Tech. That's right. I'm assuming teaching English. <laughs> <laughs> 
them kids better bring that English right on those papers. Let me just say that. <laughs> right. We all met in a summer program called Center of, Center of Excellence in Science, Math, and Engineering the, the summer before our freshman year. We were all STEM majors. I started out as an engineering major. I gave that up because I, was, I realized very early I was disinterested in being an engineer at some point. Um, Though oddly, I got a, my, I don't even use my degrees for what I do in life. I write for a living and I don't use any of my degrees for that. But I did spend 14 years on Capitol Hill uh, becoming completely cynical about the political process. <laughs> These are some of my best friends in life. And Morehouse brought us together and gave us one another and gave us people who would make sure that we never fall, never, never failed, right? So before we jump into, I'm gonna read something. Adrian, a couple years ago, wrote uh, one, another one of our friends from Spelman. I'm, I'm just gonna read a, a portion of it. Adrian took on the mentorship role. If you, need, if you know somebody you need a mentor, this brother right here takes on all, <laughs> takes on everybody. Listen, this brother ain't never met nobody he wasn't willing to help out in life. So trust me, if you need a mentor, Adrian is your guy. But he wrote a letter to a student of one of our friends from Spelman offering like his mentorship, but also some advice about why he should look at Morehouse. So this is gonna be a short excerpt of what, of what he wrote. Morehouse is a school that surrounds you with other movers, shakers, and dreamers like yourself. I tell people all the time that the reason I'm doing well in life is that I was surrounded by other people who wanted more for themselves. That's what you get at Morehouse. You'll find that if you ask to run, you will find that if I ask you to run a mile, you're always gonna run it faster if someone like you is running beside you. You will always run it slower when you're running alone. Histori historically black colleges and universities are an essential part of black America's progression throughout American society. They've given us a place to grow and nurture our young thinkers and doers. Morehouse in particular has excelled at this because they constantly remind you of those who came before you, those whose legacy you're carrying on, and they constantly remind you of those around you, those who will push you as well as you push them towards greatness. So, inspirational words. So I have to, oh wow, that got real loud real quick. <laughs> so let me just go ahead and ask. I'm gonna, start, I'm gonna start with you, Frank. As my family, my brothers, people who have been a part of every major success story that I have to my name at this point, were we just lucky or is this, was it Morehouse? And maybe, is that a trick question? It is a trick question and, and I think it's uh, a little combination of, of, of the two in a sense that, um, you know, we think about different decisions we may have made and gone different places. And I don't know if, I'm pretty certain I would have met other good people. I'm not quite sure if I would have met as good of people all in one place, you know? So to think about, you know, we're talking about more of the professional things that we did, but even if we just think about those four years in terms of, you know, getting through classes with each other, trying to take as many classes as we did with each other, and doing really, really well, not just, you know, the bare minimum to get through, and still partying every single weekend, you know? So, like, I don't know if I would have had that. And I, I, I think if I'd have gone anywhere else, it's, it's just hard to believe that my time during those four years would have been anything similar to what it was here. Yeah, he's not wrong about the taking classes with the homies. I was not a math major. I took math classes just to hang with them, which is probably the stupidest thing you can do. Um, I was sitting in the vector analysis and differential. I, I took all these classes just to hang with the homies, and I would never advise anybody to do that. Uh, 
I passed them all, and I actually probably got B's and A's in all of them, but very dumb. I tapped out on Abstract Algebra, a song that Adrian wrote a song about while he was about to fail an Abstract Algebra test. I won't make him sing that now. But Y'all making me look lame as I was <laughs> No, it was a wonderful song. People walked in while we were singing the song while failing an Abstract Algebra test. People walked in and started adding their own verses. It was a, it was a mo it was a movement. Oh, it was oh, real. Oh, the spirit. It was a movement. The spirit caught me that day. It was a movement. <laughs> this brother was sitting there. He was like, "Y'all, I'm about to fail this test." And Eddie Kendrick's intimate friends was playing in the background and just started singing. I'm about to fail my abstract algebra. And next thing you know, we're all singing. So, my good my good vocalist over here. <laughs> Like, you wrote this letter, and it's something that stuck with me. I, pu I actually published it on Very Smart Brothers a couple years ago because I thought it was so moving and talked about what we gained from being here and why it was so important that we chose this space to be in. Like, do you still feel the same way about everything that you wrote in, in, in that letter about, and would you tell anybody coming the same thing? Absolutely. Um, you know, I can't, I can't say that, um, you know, just like Frank was saying, I can't say that people wouldn't get a good college experience somewhere else. But when I came to Morehouse, you know, there were, there were certain things that were just very pivotal to me early on. You know, I had some sense of identity about myself, but, you know, the, the, the people here kind of push you to look at yourself a little bit more. And that's people, not just, uh, you know, your, your, your professor instructors, but also your, your friends that you're around. And so I think for us, one of the important things was we, we really went through a lot of experiences together that kind of defined us from self-discovery through some trials and tribulations and, uh, you know, just some struggles as well. And so I think that combined with the environment, you know, just made for a unique experience. Yeah, I definitely think that who I came in as and who I left as is two completely different things. I was way more confident. Um, like Rashad mentioned, like I, and Khadija mentioned, like I walk, I never, there's no room I walk into that I don't believe I belong in, right? Like there's never been a space since leaving here that I'm like, eh, I, I don't belong here. Like there's no imposter syndrome. I've always struggled with what that even means because maybe I'm a little bit overly confident, but you know. Not you, Dwayne. Oh yeah, you you were you were, you were not on the government. Hold on, you were not just a different person because of confidence. <laughs> Panama, he came in and and he's a guy from Huntsville, Alabama. His uniform was like 100% Tommy Hilfiger. Hilfiger. <laughs> so this and some of it was real. Some of it was actually real. I never I never seen anything like it. He came in like the entire outfit, shirt, shorts, watch, watch, watch. socks. Shoes was Tommy. He was a walking Tommy Hilfiger billboard. By the time <laughs> he left Morehouse, he was straight off the streets of, of, of New York. <laughs> he was Timberland stomping out here, you know. So, you know, hey, you know, transformation happens for us all. <laughs> Listen, if college is nothing if not a time for discovery and trying to figure out who you are. Uh, there was a couple weeks in there. I was from D.C. Uh, you know, there was a there was there was a bunch of that. So. Manu, yes, as a person who you run a program for that works with students that preparing them for, for college, right? And, yeah. and especially in STEM, I imagine you try to steer people this direction or to Spelman, <laughs> or to, I imagine that's what you do, right? So how does your experience here help inform the way that you try to impart that, uh, I guess it's collusion, to uh, get people to Morehouse, but you know, we'll just call it what it is, recruitment, help, how do you help recruit? 
more house recruitment. Sadly, sadly, of the 130 kids that have come to our program, only two have come to Morehouse. Really? We've had about eight come to Spelman. So I had to stop talking about Morehouse because I was talking about it a lot and what it could do, and I guess they don't want to be like me. That's cool. We'll take that, right? Because they come from Atlanta, though. So if you come from Atlanta, do you want to stay in Atlanta? That's something you got to figure out for yourself, right? But, um, but the ones that have come are actually the ones that then go back and tell the others about how great the experience was. But no, I've not been successful. But you came and talked to them. Adrian came and talked to them. <laughs> I've been waiting for Frank White to come through, because maybe if I get my cooler friends to talk to the young folks, we can get more coming, coming through Morehouse. So let me ask you, though. So only 10 of the 130 have... Two. No, two from Morehouse. You said eight. Okay. All right, so yeah. 10. Yeah. I, could, I can math things. <laughs> I'll be mathing. Um, what do you think that is? Like, why do you think that is? Just curious. Uh, I think people want to want to get away from home, right? And I think one of the parts that for us, none of us are from Atlanta. I mean, you maybe are from Atlanta and, and other parts of your experience. But um, for me, as you know, coming to Morehouse, I have five brothers, right? I had four brothers at the time that I came to Morehouse, so I didn't wasn't looking necessarily to be just around. I needed brotherhood, but um, I did want to get away from home. I was, you know, went to high school in Dover, Delaware, and so when I came down, as I think you all know the story, is my last school I applied to. Uh, my dad encouraged me to apply to Morehouse. Um, and it was the last school I applied to and the last school I heard from, but coming on campus, seeing the brothers, everybody was saying hello, speaking, being nice, and I was like, yo. But I think important is we all came up in the 90s, right? And so what the images of black men was in the 90s was like, not this. And so I think when we got to Morehouse, it was like, brothers do this, brothers like this, brothers do that. That's what sold it for me. So one of the things that one of the reasons I wanted to bring you all up here is because we've been friends for 25 years now. Yeah. Um, Nine, seven? Yeah, we're all 40. <laughs> we're all, so more than, more than half of our lives at this point, right? Significantly more than half of our lives at this point, we've been a part of, one, a part of each other's lives. And I, obviously, I think we all attribute that to Morehouse. Um, how do you think that... I know, because I feel, I feel like I'm asking just a bonding question, but it just, you know, like... Do you think who we are today, and because you are the people that most intimately know who we all are just as humans, do you think we would have been the same people without Morehouse? Having my new go straight into his program, that was, I, for me to say I was not influenced by that would be completely crazy, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> seeing my new do his thing, go up to MIT, do his things, like, yeah, I, I could do that too, you know? Um, and just seeing some of the other moves that you all have made too, I mean, those things are not lost on me. It's not like, oh, you know, that's really cool. It's like, <laughs> no, nah, I can do that too. And, and we can talk about some things. We can talk about business and you can, you know, hash some ideas out. So I would say, I don't know if I would be in the exact same place that I am here, you know, that I'm in right now because of y'all. So I'd I say mean, no. Adrian went off. He was the first one to do the internship to make all the money. <laughs> when he went to Texaco Snitching. and started making, and when he came back with how much money he made that summer. Snitching. Me and Frank, <laughs> we were NASA scholars on that government dive, oh, and yeah. ours was a lot less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it started to be like, wait, we can use these internships to like go places. And so it's, it was all of that feedback, I think, that we, we kind of popped for each other. I thought that was dope. Yeah, I mean, and, and I was talking to Rashawn and, and, and Calvin earlier about just kind of seeing certain things around us. Um, you know, like I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So, you know, it's a, 
heavy black population and things like that. So blue collar working town. And so, you know, I saw people who were successful. They, they worked hard, made money and things like that. But once I came to Morehouse, I saw people kind of doing things that I had never seen. And so, you know, in our class, we, you know, I could tell you a couple of names. We had a guy, Chris Kraft. And Chris Kraft, you know, while he's in undergrad, he's like owning a record label. And I was like, people own record labels in undergrad? You know, and, and so like, I was like, damn, okay, that, that's some new stuff. And then, uh, you know, we had uh, Kevin Johnson. Kevin Johnson owns uh, Johnson Media. So he has a media marketing company. I think he started that in undergrad. Both of those gentlemen are Graves Hall representatives. <laughs> <laughs> third floor, third floor. You know, I, you know, I was, I, I was junior year. Uh, Panama, myself, Rashawn are all the econ majors. And, you know, I, I saw Rashawn and he was working at Goldman Sachs. And I was like, he was working at Goldman Sachs as a junior in college? You know, so all of those types of things, like, kind of started putting, putting things into a different context for me. And I had just a lot of people around me that showed me possibilities that I never thought existed before. I mean, I could even do it even simpler, bro. So as I, I don't want to throw away that me and Frank were NASA scholars and working at NASA, that was dope. But my first summer, I went to Huntsville, Alabama. That was not my first choice. I was thinking I was gonna go to DC, which was closer to home. But in Huntsville, your family took me in for that summer. So I had never been to Huntsville, Alabama. It's a city, you know, I'm not gonna clown it anymore because I was living in Southwest Huntsville. As, the, as you remember, there was a Kool-Aid stain. We call it Kool-Aid on the stain We thought there the was kitchen. a blood stain on the floor of his apartment when he first walked in there. I'm still not sure it was None of blood. us were snitching. We were never going to testify about it. But, I mean, the fact that I could go to Huntsville, be safe doing NASA, and then your family could take me in, you were working there, your friends could come hang out, that would have been a whole different summer for me, and I might have had a whole different experience about summer internships and being away from home, you know, if my boy wasn't there in town ready to look out. So it's those small things that we had just known each other for a year when you were like, come through. Talking about our bond here, but if we talk about how we're connected to each other's families, like siblings and parents and things like that, like going to somebody's house and not even thinking twice about it and like seeing family and kissing on them and loving them because, you know, they're not your blood, but they are your blood. Right. And so like this bond here and the love here is bigger than just us. Like it's our families children and wives now and all those kinds of things like it just keeps on extending itself let's take a break stay with us the griot black podcast network is here everything you've been waiting for black culture amplified find your voice on the black podcast network listen today on the griot mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard you said something that was um Interesting. So I, I like to tell this story because it's tragic. Um, <clears throat> a couple years ago, I got, I went to Yale University has a, a conference called the Black Solidarity Conference. I never heard of it before, but I was invited to go speak up there. And one of my news friends, uh, Lola, was speaking on a panel. So I went to the panel just, you know, to be supportive, whatever. I didn't really have any idea what the panel was about, but I was there. It was early. And it's a bunch of black scientists speaking about being black in science on the panel. And there was this young girl who raised her hand and she's crying. And I'm like, you know, like nothing they said was that sad or really bad. Like, you know, I, I didn't understand. But she, she had never seen a black scientist before. Like she'd never seen one and she's in STEM. Like this is what she wanted to do with her life. And 
you know, I'm sitting here thinking, it's like, that is the craziest thing I ever heard because I know a bunch of black scientists. Like, I know tons of people, and they're all various ranges of good to terrible human beings, but I know a <laughs> bunch of them. Like, I have friends who are doctors. I got friends who, I don't know what they do. I remember one day, Manu sent me, like, an abstract of something that he wrote for something, and I didn't know what any of the words meant. I knew, like, the thes and stuff like that, but, like, the individual words all together, I really couldn't put it together in a way that made any sense. But I'm like, yo, whatever you do must be important because I don't get it. And maybe that's not my calling, but it kind of brought full circle to me this idea that I think my view of blackness has been like re-normalized, right? Like I view, like I know Rashawn, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I see my man in the private jets and stuff because he puts it on Instagram and I'm like, I want to get on a private jet one day. That's a, that's a request. <laughs> you know, but you know, like, so that you know, I'm gonna lob that in. You, like like you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you call me, I won't call you on that one. But you know, like, I know PhD. There's two PhDs sitting on the stage, right? Like, that's it's funny because that's not impressive to me anymore, despite the fact that it's very impressive, right? Like, I'm so used to it. You know, Calvin is a doctor, right? Like, my man Calvin, right there. And, you know, Calvin is one of the best roasters I've ever met in my life, you know? Like, this man will jump all day with you if you legendary. want. And this man... Legendary. Right, legendary, right? Legendary. Right. And, you know, legendary. And right behind him is my friend Aziza, who also has a PhD, right? So it's like, I know all these people that are so accomplished in spaces that we view as successful that it reframed the way that I view us, right, in general. And I think that's probably the most significant thing that I've gotten from being at Morehouse and Spelman, HBCU in general, like the way that I view black excellence is completely different. It's black excellence is one of the norms for what we are. What's the most significant thing that you have gotten from your experiences there and the lives that we've led since? Deep question, I know. I mean, I'll say this. Um, again, I mentioned this being from the 90s. What, what I learned coming to Morehouse, I, I honestly, being smart, you know, we called a white boy back in school. Like, oh, you're trying to act white because you get grilled in school. So I was nervous coming here thinking, oh, I'm going to get that. And coming here really showed me black men are all different types of people and things and all different personalities, all different types of loves and arts. And you could come here and find out all of the other parts of yourself that you want to be besides being this black man that the rest of the world puts on you, which I think lets us just be who we are and grow into that. And I think I wasn't expecting that part to happen here. And I think that's, that was a gift to me. I, I agree with you on that. I think, um, you know, it's funny, as you, you were mentioning earlier, that I do the mentoring with a few students from Morehouse and Spelman. And so, uh, you know, my, my mentees have actually graduated now, but I remember, uh, one of my mentees, his freshman year, I took both he and his roommate out to eat. And we went to the Vortex, and you know, they were kind of trying to feel me out, I'm feeling them out. And um, in the conversation, like we ended up talking about uh, Watchmen, the Watchmen comic books. And uh, one of the mentees was like, Mr. Wilson, you, you read comic books? And I was like, yeah. You know, and he was just, he was in awe that like a black, per a black man read comic books because people have kind of trivialized it as like, this is something black people don't do, this is something men don't do, you know? And so when you come to Morehouse, like you kind of figure out like black men do everything. 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 There's nothing we don't do, you know? And whatever you're into, whatever you do, whatever you're interested in, whatever your strengths are, you know, interests, there's somebody here 
that does it as well, and it makes it okay, you know, to see it. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. I'd probably say the maybe the most important thing is similar to the idea of there just being greater success in our community. And a trivial example of that was freshman year. And I don't think Rashawn had the rover at that point just yet. <laughs> but it was like you could see people had real money. And so I'm from DC, I'm from Southeast. And so I know there's money in the area and I know there's black people in the area, but from Southeast, I don't know people really getting it. You know what I mean? And so I get here and I'm just like, People really got it. People really doing like well, not just working to, you know, get a fifth of rum at the end of the week, but really flourishing. And, you know, the idea Rashawn mentioned earlier about, you know, generational wealth building, those kinds of things, like people are doing it and doing it big. And so I think being exposed to that forces you to, seeing more forces you to want more. I mean, people even had Hilfiger socks here. Wow. That was like crazy. <laughs> they were, they were, and they were real socks. They were real Hilfiger, I believe. It's funny you mention that because I, I, I jokingly say this. It's not accurate. So my sister here, I don't mean this the way it's going to sound, but I didn't realize I was broke till I got to Morehouse and I'm seeing people driving Hummers on campus. There was two dudes with Hummers when we got here. And I'm like, well, oh, those are students. Like... In, in my mind, Hummers were in rap videos, right? They were, that's where they were, that's where they belonged. I remember there was one dude who had both a Lincoln Navigator and a Lincoln Town car and only wore Coogee sweaters. Um, and I remember thinking, it's like, man, I didn't realize there was that much money in that black people had that kind of money. And you know, I've, I've come from a, a middle-class background, you know what I mean? But I just didn't, I didn't know. You know what I'm saying? And I remember, I remember, and I can't say that, that it influenced me in the way that it let me understand that, yo, you really, there really is all types of black people. Like, it really is a lot of that. It didn't really push me towards getting that money, <laughs> but it definitely pushed me in the idea that, wow, you really can be whoever you want to be here. Like, you can, you know, I'd prefer to be somebody with a lot of money, but that, you know, wasn't my lot in life at that moment. Well, but let me, let me add one thing, because I, I know we kind of throw out a lot of money stuff and people do it well and successful and things like that. But another thing as well is just kind of the level of thinking that Morehouse and Spellman both force you to do. And, you know, up, up until college, you know, like part of success was memorizing and, you know, being able to, you know, navigate how grades are awarded and things like that. You get to Morehouse, and, and I was telling somebody earlier, my, my first history class, the textbook in the history class is how did Europe, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. You know, <laughs> that was the textbook for the history class. And so we're sitting in the class, and I mean, the discussion of it is like, oh, 
I didn't know any of this, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, the level of thinking and analysis that it forces you to do. Oh, I, I'm in an English class, and I still remember my freshman year English professor, Dr. Capers. I had Dr. Capers too. And I thought I was pretty good in English until I got to Dr. Capers. And I was like, the first paper we turned in, I was like, man, I knocked this out the park. He turned his paper back in, big C on it. I was like, what in the? <laughs> and it took me an entire semester to get an A on his paper. And that was the most valuable grade that I ever got. And he sat with me after every paper and talked to me about how I thought about it, how I wrote it, all of these things. And I don't necessarily know if I would have gotten that level of attention, that level of focus anywhere else. So, you know, it's experiences like that that I think were pivotal to my experience at Morehouse. And I think none of us, we, if the four of us are gonna talk about our experience at Morehouse, we gotta talk about the one class we all took together. It was like one class, <laughs> men in society, but Dr. White. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Coogee sweaters earlier, Dr. White wrapped the Coogee sweater, but that class, of course the class was really titled Black Men in Society. Um, and I think what we weren't ready for, that the discussion was about a lot of stuff down in Atlanta with the, the child prostitution ring and pimp mentality and, and pool and just what that was that was driving it. That was such a deep, because he was a sociologist, that was such a deeper discussion than just what was in the newspapers that was like, this is why you come to a school like this, to have these conversations that yeah. people aren't discussing. And the fact that it was a class that fit a requirement, but that all four were, were taken just was just mind blowing. That was the first time I heard the phrase, the triple oppression of the black woman. Mm -hmm. Like that has that stuck with me. He put that on a board. It was like racism, classism, sexism. And I was like, damn. Yeah. I had never seen those words together in one place and I had never thought about that. And despite the fact that he spent the an immaculate amount of time talking about all the research he did in strip clubs. He was still very accurately able to kind of, Dr. Clark White was able to explain this in a way that, like, I've never lost that. It's and, always been in my mind. check the brothers that started talking about it inappropriately, despite him talking about the strip clubs and child sex work. I was like, wait, right? And used to check people's minds. That was great, great. And I'd say we probably take that same kind of interaction with each other. So we're talking about, you know, dealing with these complex issues and think about things differently. It's not, we're not together 10 minutes before we're gonna start debating whether <laughs> it's serious or not. We're gonna have to debate, iron sharpens iron, and we go fuss, and we go fight about it, and then we go walk away like you dumb, but let's have a, I don't know, a chicken wing, lemon pepper wet, I don't well, know. Well, Frank, Frank didn't want you to know that that happened this morning. <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally, literally. <laughs> Literally I mean, it is, it is true. Like one of the one of the greatest joys in life, I think, is the ability to have completely irrelevant conversations in a very deep way with your friends. Like you know, you can act actively argue and fight with your boys about things that do not matter in the grand scheme of things. But rap, it's lyri matters. rap lyrics. <laughs> Break time. Stay tuned for more. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. All right, so as we wrap, as we wrap this portion up, um, let me just throw like a, a, grand, a grand question towards you all that I don't have to answer to, but since I'm the moderator, I don't have to answer. Um, <laughs> These podcasts that we're taping, they're going to be viewed by lots of people. And the, the part of the reason I did this and wanted to do this here is because 
I want people who watch this podcast, these episodes, to understand both my love and affinity for, for Morehouse and Spellman, but also why I think they're so important. So if you had to tell somebody, um, like an elevator pitch, why HBCUs and Morehouse and Spellman, either way, whatever, are so important, like how would you do that? What would be your elevator pitch to somebody? I walked into freshman chemistry, Dr. Payne, who earned his name legit, but that was his gift name, called all of us doctor for the whole class. So he walked in, I walked into the class, 18, down, Dr. Platt, Dr. Platt, Dr. Smith, Dr. Byrne. And I was like, it's cool to be called doctor. In Hernan degree, and I know he had to fight to earn his PhD, and that set the seed. So to go to a place where someone believes from start, right? You don't have to prove anything. They believe you can do these big things. That has stuck with me and I'm Dr. Platt That's today. That's a great right? story. Yeah. Like genuinely, sincere. That's a great story. Follow that up, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things, and I think m most people who come to Morehouse will tell you that as soon as you step in, they always tell you like, we're making leaders. And I think they tell you it so much that you start believing it. You know, so it's just within everything you do, you're like, why can't, why can't I do that? Why can't I do this? You know, and, and when you start thinking in those terms, and you, you know, like a lot of places kind of mold you and shape you to, 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 to conform to this particular path of life. But when you think like, I'm the leader, you know, or I am the leading authority or the leading opinion on something, changes your whole perspective of what, the way you approach stuff. So I think, you know, Morehouse is that place where people are constantly telling you and pushing you to be that leader in whatever you want to be. Good follow-up. Yeah, I don't know what I could do with that, but I would say uh, in the last five years or so, people have thrown out the word black excellence. And I think, you know, for some people, they think of Jay-Z and maybe even Beyonce. And especially in Jay's regard, he's kind of seen as, you know, one in a million in terms of where he came from and where he is now. But I would argue that, you know, we didn't know at the time because we took it for granted because, you know, we was just dumb kids in school, but we were living and breathing black excellence. Mm. And you just can't take that for granted. Like you can't get that anywhere else for the ages of 18 to 20, wow. 22. That's you just good. can't. And it does something to you. It does something to the way you think, the, even the way you feel. It really does touch your soul. And so that would be my pitch about why HBCUs are important. That's good. Yeah, one of the, um, I said I wasn't gonna answer this, but I actually have one because Rashawn mentioned uh, Dr. McLaurin. Was he a doctor? I think he was a doctor. Ben McLaurin, right? And I took a class with him, and we've been having these conversations up here, which is largely about perspective, right? What you got by being here and how it changed the way that you look at both yourself or the world or your own personal circumstances and all that. And I remember being in the class with him, and he said something that reframed the way I looked at everything. So, you know, he was talking about people's like, you know, when you, he was doing like some kind of interview thing, and somebody went up there and was like, you know, what's your GPA? He was like, man, I got 2.0. He said, no, I have a 2.0. Like, you walk in there like that's the greatest 2.0 you've ever seen in life. Like, you don't give somebody else the opportunity to tell you that you're less than. You basically walk in there like you, like, nobody else could do that 2.0 the way that you did it. That 2.0 
is a valuable 2.0. And if you got a 3.0, boy, you better walk in there and be like, listen, you need me more than I need you. <laughs> and I remember, I, I vividly remember that because I thought that was so funny, but I'm like, yo, that's actually true. Like the way that you frame a conversation is largely built on who you're around and the people that teach you how to frame it, right? Like if I don't walk in somewhere thinking being called doctor from the beginning, am I gonna do that myself? Probably not. But if you put that out in the world, all of a sudden that's how I'm thinking. It's gonna change the way that I view myself, the way that I view how I interact with the world, and the way that I view myself interacting with the people around me, because if I expect more out of me, then I'm gonna expect more out of you, right? And because I have high expectations of myself, then I can't be around people that I don't believe can do amazing things. So if anybody's faltering, it's my job to help us get back on track. And because I believe in y'all, right? Like I believe in my people enough to make sure that wherever I go, they go. Wherever they go, I go. Like I got a PhD too, damn it. As far as I'm concerned, that's our PhD. You know, that's our PhD. Um, that's gonna wrap up this portion of the panel. If y'all could please give your hand, put, put your hands together for our panelists here. <laughs> I appreciate y'all, I love y'all, genuinely from the heart. I wanna thank you all and Khadija for being here, for sharing your stories, for sharing your lessons, for sharing yourselves with us here back at home, a place that there's a lot of things started for us here, right? Like, you know, I, I jokingly say that life for me started, like when my daughter was born, it's like a change, like there's the day before my kid was here, then there's the day after. Life is completely different once there's a, once a kid around, like it's different, but. Hmm. Who I was before I got to Morehouse, I would not be today. Like, that's not who I am today. And I, I got that from all the people I met, the people that are in here that I, that I can see through the, through the lights and stuff, the people that I know from Calvin, who I, I, I swear to God, I just cannot thank you enough for, for what you literally gave. You gave me my career, even if you will never take credit for it. And, you know, so thank you all. Thank you, Manu, Adrian, Frank, Prashan. Uh, Thank you all for coming out for this live taping of Dear Culture. Thank you to Morehouse College, my man Sean over here for making this whole thing happen. Uh, there's nothing like being at home, right? Like you, I've had an opportunity to speak all over the country in all kinds of places, but there's something special about being able to come do it at the place that you actually consider making you who you are. So <laughs> thank you all for coming out to this live podcast taping of Dear Culture, one of the podcasts from the Grill Black Podcast Network. Make sure you check us out on the Grills app or everywhere you get your podcasts. Um, thank you all. I'm Panama Jackson, Dear Culture, the Grill. Thanks for coming.